Good afternoon. I'm Russ Portanoy, the Executive Director of the MGHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the fourth Professor's Rounds in the 2018 MGHS NHPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. I'm really delighted today to introduce to you Dr. Jennifer Temmel, who is our professor today. Dr. Jennifer Temmel is Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and Director of Cancer Outcomes Research and Clinical Director of Thoracic Oncology at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. She is nationally and internationally renowned for her research accomplishments and her leadership in the development of an early integration model for palliative care in oncology. In the early 2000s, she collaborated with the Division of Palliative Care at MGH to develop a palliative care program in the outpatient cancer, cancer clinic. This program is now the premier integrated palliative care and oncology care program in the country. Through a series of randomized trials in this setting, she then defined the benefits associated with early integration of palliative care into oncology practice. And through leadership in various national organizations and agencies, she helped formulate practice guidelines that have redefined the role of palliative care in oncology. These guidelines have been recently endorsed by the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Dr. Temel is among a very small group of leaders who have expanded an essential evidence base for palliative care and created a new field of palliative oncology, which is now a mainstream model of cancer care in this country and elsewhere. Her topic today is ensuring the delivery of high quality, high quality care throughout the cancer tra trajectory. Dr. Temel. Awesome. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Um, so just to start off to talk about what we are commonly referring to when we use the term high quality care in oncology. And I think for most oncologists nowadays, they're talking about personalized cancer therapy. They're talking about molecular or prognostic profiling to determine whether uh, uh, genotype-directed therapy or immunotherapy will give the patient the best chance of response to their treatment. How about when we use the term throughout the cancer trajectory? In that case, we're usually talking about things like cancer prevention, like tobacco cessation or exercise, cancer screening with mammograms or colonoscopies, and again, for patients who are living with their cancer, most commonly we're talking about uh, genetic testing for uh, identifying the best treatment. But I would argue that there are some really important elements and aspects of cancer care that should be included in these definitions, but usually are not. And that is that high quality care for patients with cancer must also ensure that patients have optimal control of their physical and psychological symptoms and that their family members receive appropriate support and that the cancer trajectory must also include the end of life. But I think we all know that often these definitions are, are not included in thinking about comprehensive cancer care. And I think the reason for that is, is probably pretty obvious that these are hard things to talk about. These are hard things to talk about when you're advertising your cancer center on TV. They're sometimes hard things for oncologists to talk about when they're talking about their cancer center, and certainly when we're seeing patients. But we know that patients with advanced cancer have a high rate of both physical and psychological symptoms. On the left side of the slide, these are patients of mine who had metastatic lung cancer. That individual with that CAT scan is certainly going to have respiratory symptoms like dyspnea and cough. Many times patients have painful bone metastasis that cause them a lot of physical symptoms. And again, it's not just these physical symptoms, but we know that patients often feel very depressed or worried about or anxious about their cancer. And both these physical and psychological symptoms negatively impact patients' enjoyment and quality of life. But we know that it's not just patients that feel distressed and worried about their illness, it's also caregivers. In this particular study, when both patients in blue and caregivers in green were given the HADS, which is a measure of both depression and anxiety, you can see that caregivers were much more likely to have significant anxiety than even patients. So clearly caregivers are experiencing a lot of worry and distress when their loved one is diagnosed with cancer. And we know that for patients, both these physical and psychological symptoms tend to worsen over time. Nowadays, probably not so much a straight line like 
that's shown on this slide, because many patients do respond for some period of time to cancer-directed therapy, but in general, the trend is, as they become closer to the end of life, these physical and psychological symptoms intensify. And it's not just these difficult physical and psychological symptoms that patients are dealing with, but especially as the patient's health status worsens, patients and their families often also face incredibly difficult decisions about their cancer and end-of-life care. When should patients stop chemotherapy? How do patients decide when to forgo life-prolonging measures and complete a MOST form and say that they're DNR or DNI? And when should patients enroll in hospice services? And we know that to enable patients and their families to make these types of decisions, it's really important that we engage in communication with them about their diagnosis and what it means, their prognosis, the goals of their cancer therapy throughout the cancer trajectory so that they're prepared to make these difficult decisions. But the data suggests that we don't always engage in effective communication with our patients and families about these topics. So in this study from the New England Journal of Medicine several years ago, when patients were asked, how likely is it that chemotherapy will cure your cancer? The majority of patients with metastatic and incurable lung or colorectal cancer endorsed some chance of cure that their some chance that their chemotherapy would cure their cancer. And sometimes people see this data and they say, okay, but so what? What's the downside or the risk of someone with advanced or incurable cancer not understanding this and erroneously thinking that treatment could cure their cancer? The problem with that is that we know that patients' understanding of the likely outcome of their illness directly translates into the decisions and choices that they make about their medical care and about their life. So specifically, patients who overestimate their chance of survival are significantly more likely to prefer and receive life-extending therapy, and they're significantly less likely to have discussed hospice care. And clearly, these are important outcomes that many of us think are not concordant with high-quality end-of-life care. But I would argue, more importantly, patients who have an understanding or awareness of their prognosis are more able to make informed decisions about how they want to spend their potentially limited time. So should they retire from their job to take that family vacation to Disney World? And importantly, if they're not going to be there for an important life event, like their son graduating from high school or their daughter getting married, they have the opportunity when they're feeling well to leave a letter, or I guess nowadays it would be to make a video for their loved ones so that they can uh, communicate their best wishes for these life events that they may not be present for. So I think there's been a lot of interest in wondering what the role palliative care can play for patients with cancer to address some of these needs. And we know that the role of palliative care in the hospital or in the home setting, mostly through hospice, for patients near the end of life, has been very well established. However, these inpatient palliative care consultative and hospice models left patients and their family members with many unmet needs, the things we've already talked about, these physical and psychological symptoms, and inadequate communication about important cancer-related topics, such as prognosis, treatment intent, and end-of-life care. And so there's sort of been this traditional sort of chiasm or break that when people are getting cancer-directed therapy, these topics really are not addressed, and only do they become uh, an essential part of care when patients are receiving hospice care. But again, the interest was, can palliative care sort of fill this gap and make sure that patients are getting their comprehensive care needs addressed throughout the course of illness, whether they're getting cancer-directed therapy or not, and to help transition to hospice care. So I think when we think about what role palliative care can play when involved earlier in the course of illness, moving them upstream, not just for patients at the end of life, it's managing these symptoms, it's including the family as recipients of care, and it's engaging patients in discussion about their illness, prognosis, and then at an appropriate time, their end-of-life care preferences. And I think a, a really important thing to remember is that all of these things need to happen while patients are receiving the best possible cancer treatments. Patients 
obviously it's a priority for them to, to feel well and sort of maximize their quality of life. But for most people, it's not at the expense of the best possible cancer therapy. And this is also why sometimes when people say, well, I do this, I'm an oncologist, why do we need other services? Is when you look at that list and make sure that patients are being tested for genetic mutations, evaluated for immunotherapy, managing immunotherapy toxicity, this is a pretty tall order for one clinician to do. And I think this slide really speaks to where a team approach by involving multiple clinicians to make sure that, again, patients are getting the best possible care and comprehensive supportive care. And we now have several randomized controlled trials demonstrating that early palliative care is feasible and beneficial for patients with advanced cancer and their caregivers. Uh, I'm not going to be able to talk about all of the studies because the good news is over the last decade there's been many randomized studies. But I'm going to talk about a few studies. Um, I'm going to talk about a body of work looking at a telephone-based early palliative care model. And then I'm going to talk about in-person early palliative care models. And I've sort of subdivided that into palliative care models in the outpatient and in the hospital setting. So the first studies sort of looking at early palliative care were the ENABLE studies. And this was the telephone-based early palliative care model. And I just want to spend a few minutes talking about this model because it's very different from what many of you who have palliative care clinicians at your institution are probably used to, and that this was not a palliative care nurse practitioner or social worker who was meeting with the patient in the clinic. So again, a telephone-based intervention, but it was a manualized psychoeducational intervention with very structured educational and problem-solving sessions that was administered by advanced practice nurses that had palliative care training, but again, was not sort of a traditional clinical palliative care intervention. So again, this intervention focused on problem solving, communication and social support, symptom management, and advanced care planning. So in the first study uh, of this ENABLE intervention, the investigators looked at over 300 patients who had a new diagnosis of a variety of advanced cancers as long as they were estimated to have a prognosis of approximately one year. And they were randomized to the enable intervention or usual care. One thing you'll see that's pretty consistent of all of these studies is that they tend to look at patient-reported outcomes, things like quality of life, symptoms, depression. But most of them also looked at sort of measures of healthcare or health service utilization. So in this study, for example, because this wasn't a clinical palliative care intervention, they actually looked at the proportion of patients who were referred to palliative care or hospice. So the patient-reported outcomes are shown on this slide, and you can see going left to right, on the left is quality of life, in the middle of the slide is symptoms, and on the right side of the slide is depression. And certainly statistical significance for quality of life and depression and a very impressive trend for symptoms. So even though these individuals didn't meet the patient, they weren't seeing them in the clinic, they were merely calling them on the telephone, pretty dramatic and impressive improvements in quality of life, depression, and symptoms. However, when the investigators looked at some of these measures of health services utilization or communication, either looking at their full study cohort or just the patients who were deceased at the time of the analysis, there was no difference in documentation of communication about end-of-life care. For example, no difference in rates in do not resuscitate orders. There was also no difference in referrals to hospice or referrals to palliative care in this cohort, and no difference in resource utilization, such as days in the hospital. So again, this telephone-based intervention had very impressive and dramatic improvements in patient-reported measures but not these measures of sort of communication and decisions about end-of-life care and healthcare utilization. So now I'm going to transition to the in-person early palliative care models, and we're going to think about outpatient-based models, most of which have included inpatient palliative care as well, and then we're going to talk about one study that was a hospital-based intervention using emergency room as sort of a trigger for palliative care. So I'm going to talk about two different outpatient palliative care models. Again, there are others, but these two were very similar in that they started palliative care within a few weeks of the patient enrolling on the trial, 
And then it was basically monthly in-person visits with a trained palliative care clinician, for the most part, a palliative care physician or advanced practice nurse. And the model that we've studied here at MGH, which we commonly refer to as early integrated palliative care, we've enrolled patients who had a new diagnosis of a, a serious poor prognosis cancer, like lung cancer, and patients receive this palliative care intervention monthly visits from diagnosis till death. Another group, Camilla Zimmerman, that I refer to as the Canadian study, enrolled patients who had been living with their cancer for some period of time, so not a new diagnosis, but once they were felt to have a limited life expectancy of somewhere between 6 and 24 weeks, they received a four-month palliative care intervention, but did have the option to continue palliative care after the intervention ended. Both of these studies did ask that when patients were admitted to the hospital, they were also seen by the inpatient palliative care team. So for the studies that have been done at MGH, this was one of the first studies. So this study was exclusively in patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, the most common type of lung cancer. And again, patients were randomized to the integrated palliative care arm where patients saw palliative care in conjunction with their oncology visits at least monthly or standard care, which at that time was palliative care upon request. And again, very similar to the previous study, a wide variety of both patient-reported measures and measures of health service utilization. So just to start with the patient-reported measures, uh, this study showed that patients randomized to early palliative care had improvement in their quality of life compared to standard care, where their quality of life actually worsened over the first three months of the study. And then if you look on the right side of the slide, we also showed that patients randomized to the intervention had lower symptoms of depression, both on the HADS, which is a measure of depression and anxiety symptoms, and on the PHQ-9, which uses diagnostic criteria for depression. We did not see differences in anxiety between the study groups. We also wanted to sort of get at this issue of prognostic awareness that I spent a lot of time talking about in the first few slides, because we do think it is important that patients with advanced cancer do have sort of an, an understanding or sense of their prognosis. And so we asked patients whether their cancer was curable and gave them opportunity to answer yes or no. And we found that patients who were seeing early palliative care were more likely to remain or become accurate in responding, no, my cancer is not curable. And that probably led to some of the findings on this slide, that patients receiving early palliative care were more likely to have a documented code status. And although rates of hospice use on this study was quite high, almost 70% for both study arms, the length of stay in hospice for patients referred to early palliative care was significantly longer. So earlier referrals to hospice. And then the figure on the right side of the slide is looking at intravenous chemotherapy administration within 14 days, 30 days, or 60 days of death, with early palliative care being the yellow bar. And you can see that with early palliative care, less chemotherapy administration in the weeks and months prior to death. We did do almost an identical study in a larger cohort of 350 patients with any advanced lung or non-colorectal GI cancer. So again, to really see if this model would translate across cancer types. Very similar study design. In this study, we did also uh, enroll the caregivers, family or friends of patients with cancer, and administer measures to them to again see if the palliative care model would improve caregiver-reported measures. So to start, we saw similar findings with improvements in quality of life and depression with this model. We also gave some measures looking at coping and end-of-life communication, and we found that for patients randomized to early palliative care, they were more likely to endorse that knowing about their prognosis was helpful both for decision-making and with coping with their illness, and they were about twice as likely to report that they had engaged in a discussion about their end-of-life care wishes. As I mentioned, we also uh, enrolled the caregivers of patients, and on the top line of this uh, uh, figure, you can see the HADS total distress. We found that caregivers of patients assigned to early palliative care had less distress, uh, so another positive outcome of uh, early palliative care. 
So this is the second study that I talked about. So this is that four-month palliative care intervention in patients with poor prognosis, advanced cancer. This is the largest palliative care study to date. This was 460 patients, so a very large study. Again, similar design, and the patient-reported outcomes are shown here. And when we look at those outcomes, very similar to the studies that I've already shown you. Improvements in quality of life, uh, decreased symptom burden, and this was a study that also looked at patient satisfaction, which was greater with the intervention. So the last study that I'm going to talk about is the hospital-based early palliative care. And what these uh, investigators did was they used sort of uh, emergency room visit as a trigger that the patient probably either was had worsening health status or their cancer was progressing. So a trigger to say this patient would benefit from inpatient palliative care. So patients who presented to the emergency room were enrolled in the study, randomized to sort of mandated inpatient palliative care or usual care. And that's shown on this slide. So again, any advanced cancer, this emergency room initiated palliative care or usual care. And they also looked at patient reported outcomes and health services utilization. This study, like all of these studies I've shown you before, also showed an improvement in patients' quality of life, with quality of life improving more for patients receiving ED palliative care versus usual care, but they didn't see any differences in their other outcomes, such as depression or healthcare utilization or discharge to hospice. So I ran through all those studies pretty quickly, so I have a summary slide, don't worry. So I think when we summarize these studies, and even though I didn't talk about every randomized palliative care study, I'm also summarizing those on this slide. Basically, early palliative care improves patients' quality of life and mood, their caregiver distress, and the delivery of end-of-life care. We saw that both telephone-based and in-person palliative care models improve patient-reported outcomes and caregiver-reported outcomes, such as quality of life and mood. What we learned from both the telephone-based model and the emergency room triggered model, that in order to improve and enhance communication about and delivery of end-of-life care, you really need a face-to-face -face early and longitudinal palliative care intervention. So I think those are really how we summarize those studies, but I think those studies have led to a number of unanswered questions. I think there's more than three unanswered questions, but because I have to leave time for questions, we're only going to talk about three of them. And I think these are probably some of our most important unanswered questions. First, what is the mechanism by which early palliative care improves outcomes? Diane Meyer is sort of famous for saying, what's in the palliative care syringe? Number two, how do we integrate palliative care services in patients with better prognosis or even curable cancers? Because almost all of the studies that I talked about today at that time, before genotype-directed therapy and immunotherapy, you know, those patients all had a prognosis of, of months to a year or so. And then third, can we make early palliative care a feasible and scalable model with our current insufficient palliative care workforce? So to start with what is in the palliative care syringe, so the question is, how does a palliative care clinician seeing my patient along with me, I'm a thoracic oncologist, not a palliative care clinician, throughout the course of their illness, how does that lead to improvements in patient-reported outcomes, such as quality of life and depression, and how does that impact their end-of-life care outcomes? And this is really a question that our group has been really, really interested and invested in for some time. So even going back to our first study, we really wanted to get a sense of, of what is happening that's different between oncology and palliative care. Because again, when we go back 10 years, I think there was a lot of backlash from oncology. You know, we do this, we don't need you to do this, we don't need help. And so we really wanted to see what is oncology doing, what is palliative care doing, where's the overlap, and where is the differences. And I think we were very reassured to see that there are a lot of overlap. But there's also areas that palliative care is discussing topics that aren't traditionally addressed by oncology. The first, and I, let me orient you to this slide, uh, on the bottom in the dark gray is uh, topics that palliative care focused on. On the top in the light gray is topics that oncology focused on. So I was first pointing out coping, and you can see that there's only dark gray below the line, which means oncology did not address 
coping in any of their interactions with patients. This was based on a medical record review. And similarly, oncology didn't reference engaging family members. But there are also many areas of overlap. When you look at addressing symptoms, you can see that that was addressed pretty equally by both oncology and palliative care, which fits into one of the things I said on my first few slides. You know, it takes an army. Patients with advanced cancer are really, really sick, and they need as much help as they can get with managing things like their physical and psychological symptoms. When it came to illness understanding, this was also a partnership. Oncology did not defer these conversations to palliative care. They worked collaboratively to help support patients in these conversations. Similarly, discussing cancer treatment, and again, something that was very important for me to see as an oncologist, we did not defer end-of-life communication and planning to palliative care. That was something that both groups took on as their responsibility. And then again, you can see on this slide there were a few topics that appropriately were deferred to oncology, discussing cancer treatment and managing medical complications. In more recent studies, we've looked at this a little bit more granularly. And what you can see is, again, not surprisingly, in purple, palliative care focuses on symptoms throughout the patient's course of illness. But if you look at that coping line, a focus on coping is really important throughout the course of illness. That's something that really stays a part of palliative care practice throughout the patient's course of illness. And then again, when you look at advanced care planning or disposition, and disposition was, for example, referral to hospice, those are topics palliative care isn't addressing with patients in their first, second, or third visit. Those are topics that really become important in the later visits near the patient's end of life. And again, we have been very interested in how palliative care is influencing coping. And we actually found in one of our more recent studies that early palliative care increases the use of sort of approach or positive coping, such as positive reframing or acceptance. And there's trends to that, the fact that it uh, decreases avoidant coping. When we performed mediation analysis, we found that improvements in coping actually mediates the improvement both in patients' quality of life and in their depressive symptoms. So again, I think palliative care, of course, is helping patients manage symptoms. And of course, when they get to the end of life, they're helping with end of life care planning and referral and hospice. But when people ask me, like, what's the real value add of palliative care or what's in the palliative care syringe? It's really helping patients cope. It's helping patients live every day to the fullest despite having a life-threatening illness. So I think this data has been really important for us answering the question of what is in the palliative care syringe. The next question, how do we integrate palliative care services in patients with better prognosis or curable cancers? Based on the studies that we talked about today and many that we didn't have the chance to talk about, uh, ASCO and many other national organizations now recommend early palliative care for patients with metastatic cancers or a high symptom burden. But I think how to integrate palliative care for patients with better prognosis incurable cancers or for those who are being treated with curative intent remains unclear. But we know that there are cancer populations who are getting curative treatment that have a very high symptom burden that isn't being addressed by oncology. So I would argue that palliative care for patients with serious cancers is not a one-size-fits-all. And instead, we need to be a little bit thoughtful and think about patient or population-centered palliative care interventions. And I think this is a beneficial way to look at it because, thank goodness, cancer treatment is evolving. Lung cancer a decade ago and lung cancer today is very different. And so we think of delivering palliative care in a patient-centered fashion. The palliative care delivery can adapt and change as we change our cancer practices. So again, for patients with a high symptom burden and mortality, early integrated longitudinal palliative care makes sense. When we started our work in lung cancer, that paradigm made sense. But if you have a patient population that has a prolonged period with low symptom burden, they may not need palliative care from the time of diagnosis. It might be something that as their health status changed, as they're hospitalized, like we talked about with that study, that maybe triggers for palliative care would be a more sensible approach. 
there's also patient populations that have a really low symptom burden and low mortality and live many, many years with their serious cancer. And breast cancer is an example of that. We know that many women with advanced breast cancer can live 10 years, so palliative care from diagnosis just wouldn't make sense. So in that population, we might want to think about uh, prognosis-directed triggers. So once patients have received three different lines of chemotherapy, that's a trigger that palliative care might be appropriate. And then as I mentioned, we need to figure out how to deliver palliative care to patients with curable illness. And I would argue that that might be a patient population where we really want to target palliative care to their high symptom periods. And that fourth uh, category is something that our group has been very interested in. And I think when we think about a patient population that's being treated for cure and has a very high symptom burden, I hope for anyone on the phone who's an oncologist, the same population comes to mind. And that's for patients getting bone marrow or stem cell transplant. Uh, I'd say the same thing about patients with leukemia, but we know that for hematologic malignancies, these patients have an incredibly high symptom burden um, and go through quite an enduring treatment to try to cure their cancer. So when we thought about trying to do palliative care for a curable population, we started with this highly symptomatic patient population of individuals undergoing bone marrow or stem cell transplant. Now again, for this population, it, it really doesn't make sense for palliative care to spend too much time talking about prognosis or end-of-life care because these patients are being treated for cure and many of them are cured. So when we thought about a patient or population-centered palliative care intervention for this population, it really was predominantly symptom and coping based. Um, the other important thing is once these patients are done with their transplant, they go back home and are, are doing quite well. And so again, we want to think about population-centric, scalable interventions. In this study, we actually only had palliative care C patients during their hospitalization, which is usually about two to three weeks. So palliative care saw patients twice weekly during their three-week hospitalization, and then these patients did not see palliative care again. This slide shows our outcomes, and I'm just going to orient you to these slides. On each of these slides, this time point here is two weeks, and then the second red circle is three months. So two weeks is when these people feel pretty darn horrible, sort of the low point of their hospitalization. And you can see if we look at quality of life, depression, anxiety, and symptom burden, at that two-week mark, patients receiving early palliative care, which is the dark circles, all had statistically significant improvement in these measures. But what was pretty remarkable is by three months, all of these patients are back home. They're almost all back home by three weeks. No palliative care exposure from discharge to three months. So about two months, never seeing the palliative care clinician again. And you can see that for quality of life, depression, and anxiety, these results were sustained for three months. And when we looked at depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder six months after the intervention, so over five months with no exposure to palliative care, these improvements in depression and PTSD were sustained. So I think the take-home message from these studies are we need to think about population-specific interventions and think a little bit away from is the cancer curable, is it incurable, is it advanced, and think about how to deliver palliative care to patients who need it most and when they need it to have an impact on their quality of life and care. The last question is, can we make early palliative care a scalable model with our current insufficient palliative care workforce? And I think there's really been two approaches to answer this question. One is trying to develop less resource-intensive palliative care models, and the other is trying to increase primary palliative care skills. So I think when we think about trying to develop less resource-intensive palliative care models, we've really spent some time talking about the first bullet point, that we could triage or um, sort of allocate services to those who need it most. Palliative care for patients undergoing a transplant, palliative care for patients with breast cancer once their prognosis is poor. And then the second uh, sort of way to develop resource, less resource-intensive palliative care models is utilizing novel technologies. 
So I do want to spend a few minutes talking about the second point on this slide. Um, there really has been a lot of discussion and really editorials about whether we can increase primary palliative care skills. And that, te that term is really referring to um, me as an oncologist. Can I be taught to do better palliative care so that I don't need a palliative care clinician to see my patients? That if you enhance my skills in symptom management and communication, that that will be as good as a separate clinician coming in and providing palliative care to my patients. And I think this is a really important question that at this point in time really remains unanswered. We actually don't have any data suggesting that primary palliative care is a, a feasible or beneficial model, but there are a lot of great studies going on looking at this. My concern about this model, and uh, really this is based on my experience as an oncologist caring for patients for almost 20 years in conjunction with palliative care, is that patients uh, often really like having that separate and distinct space and time with a clinician that isn't their oncologist. My sense is, as, as wonderful as I may be in my communication skills and supporting patients and their families, um, no matter how you slice it, I hold the chemotherapy or the immunotherapy key. And as we talked about in the beginning, having optimal cancer treatment is really important to most patients who are dealing with a cancer diagnosis. And patients sometimes want to put on a, a, a strong or a brave face to their oncologist because, again, they know we hold that chemotherapy key. And so they appreciate that separate space and time with another clinician where they can be a little bit maybe more honest or upfront about what their symptoms are, the distress that they're having, how this cancer diagnosis has impacted their marriage, and some other things that they just really might not want to talk about with me. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking about number two because I think that the jury is still out. Um, but I do want to just spend the last uh, three minutes or so talking about uh, less resource-intensive palliative care models. So I think there is a lot of interest right now in utilizing technology to increase access to palliative care. And again, if we think back to the first study that I talked about, where uh, the Enable intervention by Marie Bukaitis and colleagues, they used a telephone-based intervention and saw really dramatic improvements in quality of life, symptoms, and depression. So that really gets you thinking about nowadays we have telehealth, we have apps, we have web-based care. So can we use technology to increase access to palliative care? And so our group and a few others is actually looking at telehealth as an effective strategy to increase patient access to palliative care. And telehealth has been shown to be an effective strategy to increase access to a variety of healthcare services when the number of specialty trained clinicians is limited. I think another potential benefit of telehealth when it comes to palliative care is it really does allow clinicians to do virtual home visits. And while I think patients are probably a little more likely to put on a strong face for their oncologist, we know that many patients, you know, they put on their makeup or they get dressed and do their hair to come into the clinic, but then when you're sitting there with them, their family is looking at you and saying, you know, in between visits, they don't get out of bed at all. And so using telehealth allows clinicians to do these virtual home visits and can see patients in their home and may provide really a better insight into what the patient and their family is really going through. So our team at MGH is actually conducting a PCORI-funded comparative effectiveness trial comparing in-person early palliative care with our model, which has been monthly in-person visits, to a telehealth early palliative care model where we're using uh, HIPAA-compliant video technology to enable the palliative care clinicians to provide face-to-face -face care. So you might say, well, how is this more scalable? It's still monthly encounters with palliative care, and that is true. But we know that with telehealth, it does save money and resources on things like uh, office staff. And people who do telehealth are actually able to see significantly more patients in the same amount of time 
because they don't have to worry about patients being roomed or issues with traffic or parking because patients can be scheduled at a time that's convenient for them. So I think uh, a lot of groups are looking at video-based or app-based or web-based palliative care interventions, and I think it'll be really exciting to see if these are effective um, and scalable modalities. So in summary, uh, the role of early and longitudinal palliative care for patients with newly diagnosed, poor prognosed cancer is very well established. And now we need to focus our research efforts on how to integrate palliative care services for other cancer populations, such as patients with curable cancers or patients with better prognosis, longer survival, advanced cancers. And probably most importantly, we need to figure out how to develop more scalable and patient-centered palliative care models. And now we have time for questions and answers. Jennifer, thank you. Uh, that was really terrific. And it brought up a lot of questions. Um, I think we have time to get through most of these. A couple of questions uh, just want more detail about the models that you described, in particular your model. Um, what, uh, a couple of people would like to know what actually constituted a palliative care visit, who was, who was there, who saw the patient, and did you, and, and then I would add, did you do any analyses that linked outcomes with the professionals who were actively involved with the patients over time? Yes, that is a really excellent question. So, you know, in the inpatient setting, palliative care tends to be very multidisciplinary with uh, physicians, advanced practice nurses, nurses, social workers, chaplain. Uh, many inpatient palliative care services also have pharmacists. Uh, my experience is that most outpatient palliative care clinics are not quite so multidisciplinary. And I would say our model is probably less multidisciplinary than most people's. And I can talk about why. So our outpatient palliative care clinic is staffed exclusively by physicians and advanced practice nurses. So I think the obvious omission there is not having a palliative care social worker. And the reason we don't have palliative care social workers in our outpatient clinic is that our cancer center model is that every disease center has at least one social worker. So we have a thoracic social worker, a GI social worker. So because of that, it, did, it felt from a resource perspective maybe a little bit redundant to have palliative care social work as well. So in our model, it's been physicians and advanced practice nurses. Uh, to Russ's point, the reason we haven't looked by discipline is when we have done qualitative data analyses of audio recorded conversations, the practice is identical regardless of physician or nurse practitioner. In addition, because our model is super resource intensive, these patients see palliative care monthly from diagnosis to death, most of them see both MDs and NPs, so sort of teasing apart whether there's a difference between those specialties has not been possible. And I do think it depends a lot on your practice model. Even in oncology, our practice model at our cancer center is that MPs and MDs are fairly equivalent, and we just don't see a lot of practice differences, but I think that's something that varies across sites. The, uh, the next question is, is a, a, a bit similar, and it speaks to uh, generalizability. Again, there, there are actually two questions that I'll, I'll link together here. The first question is, in your randomized trials, what percentage of the total population could be entered? In other words, what, what was the percentage of patients who opted not to go into the study? Yep. And do you have information about how those patients differed than the patients who entered the study? And actually, I'll add a third question of the similar type. What do you think about uh, diversity or heterogeneity in the population? Do you think that your study represented a fairly homogeneous population that visits, visits MGH versus uh, the rest of the world? Yeah. So in all of our studies, our enrollment has been between 60 to 70 plus percent of eligible patients enroll. So I think it's pretty representative of our population. In our more recent studies, the most common reason why patients didn't enroll is because they wanted early palliative care, which I actually think speaks to our population not being representative of everywhere in the U.S. 
But again, I think because our enrollment rates have been 70% or more, probably representative of our patient population. Um, most of the study, uh, just actually all the studies I showed today had enrollment rates of 60 to 70%, so uh, a pretty high proportion of the sample population. But um, many have not included uh, very uh, geographically, racially, or ethnic diverse groups. Um, the caveat to that is being able studies. Um, Marie Bakaitis is uh, very well known in, in rural community-based research, and actually the reason she made a telephone-based intervention is because her population was quite rural at that point in New Hampshire and now in Birmingham, Alabama. And they didn't think that patients would be able to come into clinic. So that's why they developed their telephone-based model. So she's done a lot of work on at least uh, sort of geographic diversity. Um, we are doing the PCORI-funded study of the telehealth model at 20 sites across the U.S. and specifically chose sites to ensure that we had geographic, racial, and ethnic diversity since in Boston, uh, our hospitals actually tend to be uh, relatively segregated. So in that PCORI study, we estimate that we will have a minimum of 30% racial and ethnic diversity and about 20% of patients who classify as living in rural areas. Uh, changing direction a little bit, uh, but again about your study, can you comment on the survival difference between patients who received and didn't receive palliative care? And did yes. you find that in both studies? Uh, that is a good question. So um, we, the survival analysis in our study was not a planned analysis. And uh, the reason we did it is not because we expected to see a survival advantage. We wanted to make sure we showed oncologists that there was no survival detriment. Um, there are a few other studies that have uh, suggested survival benefits. One is Project Enable, which I already showed you. Project Enable had a follow-up study, which I didn't present today, which was powered for survival, that also suggested a survival advantage. And there are a few older studies looking at kind of early hospice that have also showed a survival advantage. So um, because none of these studies were powered for survival, I think the safest statement is that early palliative care doesn't decrease survival. I believe that it probably does improve survival because of all of the positive outcomes that we see. We know that when patients have better quality of life and less depression, they're more out and about. They're not going to get blood clots. They're not going to get pneumonia. They're going to do better. We also know that sometimes oncologists, hopefully not on purpose, but sometimes accidentally, give chemotherapy to patients when they shouldn't. And the data suggests that when palliative care is involved, we give less chemotherapy at the end of life. And so I think both of those factors probably do translate into a survival advantage. Um, I think that the days of looking at survival in mixed cohort palliative care studies are over. Because even if you just did a study in lung cancer, having patients with EGFR mutations or ALK translocations or RET translocations, it's just too hard to look at survival, and now we have immunotherapy. So I think we're not going to have any more data on survival, so I think we can all feel confident. It is definitely not worse, and it's probably a little bit better. The reason I don't present that in my slides is because while that survival data did get palliative care, the attention and recognition that it woefully needed and deserved I don't think it's the most important part of palliative care. We know that patients and their families are really suffering, and palliative care makes them feel better, improves their outcomes, and that's what's really important. And the survival, to me, is just a little bit of icing on the cake. Um, we uh, had some, I, I didn't talk about it today. In our last study, we had some differential findings by GI and thoracic cancer. When we look at lung cancer, we continue to see a separation of the survival curve, so somewhat reproducing our findings. But again, uh, the GI cohort made things a little bit funny, so I, I don't think that study will really add to the, to the body of scholarly literature. Um, just for myself, I wondered, did you, have you looked at you know, some kind of a, a latent class analysis to see whether or not the survival endpoint 
and the, the patient-reported outcome endpoint um, were in the same subgroups of patients. If, if you know what I'm trying to get at here, yes. you know, yeah. this, the data you showed us were differences in means. Yeah. And there's always a possibility that that hides different subgroups responding to the intervention in very different ways, including potentially hiding subgroups who have shorter survival, but you wouldn't know by looking at the data in the way that you analyzed it or presented it today. So I just wondered the extent to which you try to drill down and get granular in that respect. I think that's a really good idea, and no, we haven't looked at that. I think, um, I think you know, it was such a small sample um, that it, we just have been nervous about, you know, analyzing that survival data too much. But I think it is that, that is a good idea. There are a couple of questions here, Jennifer, that are sort of philosophical, but. You know, they're very, very topical kinds of issues, and I just, uh, I'll ask them and let you just opine as one of the great experts in the area. So one is the importance of community-based palliative care versus ambulatory palliative care, um, which I would add, you know, sort of the population-centered concept of tr appropriately triaged, um, personalized palliative care, but given in an ambulatory context, versus community-based palliative care, which, as you know, is, is developing uh, in the country, but in fits and starts. And the mm -hmm. question is, are the findings that you are finding in these randomized trials, are they supporting um, sort of giving up on community-based palliative care as a service delivery model that should be pursued? I, I think that's a great question. You know, honestly, I would put that back into like it takes an army like so I don't think what we have showed would be replacing or supplanting community-based palliative care and you know I've been an oncologist for almost 20 years I don't think I've ever said to a cancer patient like or a cancer patients ever said to me like no I don't need more help right I mean these patients right. they have such a hard time it's such a burden so I think they'll take help and support wherever they can get. I think the community-based palliative care models um, have a substantial role in some communities. Um, there was just a really important paper by one of my colleagues uh, in JAMA Oncology by Stacey Fisher about community-based palliative care model, which was a really wonderful study with very interesting outcomes. Um, I think there are a lot of places around the country where Patients with serious illness get most of their support from church settings. And again, that's something that Marie in, uh, in Birmingham has looked at. These things really vary based on what community you're in and what part of the country that you're in. And while certainly there are people who get a lot of support from their community and church in Boston, I don't think that's a primary source of support for people here. So I think, Russ, what you said is correct. It really is patient and population-centered palliative care. So by no means do I think the MGH model is the best model or the model that everyone should be doing in every circumstance. But I guess I more think of these things as complementary. So again, just because a patient of mine is seeing palliative care doesn't mean that they're not going to benefit from social work or from physical therapy or from nutrition or for hospice when they're ready. I think that um, for most patients and families, whatever support they can get is great, and I don't think we should think of it as one or the other. Um, there's a question about the very, very interesting finding um, of coping as being a key mediator. Uh, that's really, the, uh, editorializing here, that's a new one for me too. I think that's really fascinating. So one, the question was, what did the palliative care team actually do to improve coping? But now you told us that it's not actually a team, it's actually a provider. Yeah. And so the question is, were your providers trained in, in, in uh, interventions to enhance coping, or was that something that was sort of baked into just good communication about symptoms and family support and other things? I think a little bit of both. I think that our palliative care team has always been very integrated with psychiatry and behavioral medicine. So I think their uh, sort of behavioral therapy skills are, are quite good, meaning 
Um, our palliative care team here never kind of self-identified as a symptom management team or a pain team like some other palliative care teams do. I think they always envision sort of more of a comprehensive care role. And I think, I don't think we, when we started this work 20 years ago, you know, Andy Billings, who was our main palliative care clinician then, who of course has since passed away, I don't think Andy was thinking about coping. But what I think the phenomenon is, is you know, when they're seeing, when you're seeing these patients at the time of diagnosis, you know, many of them look and feel like all of us. Some of them don't have a lot of symptoms, either at diagnosis, if they're responding to their therapy. So a lot of palliative care clinicians, when they're just starting in this patient population, they were like, I walked in and the patient looked fine and they weren't having symptoms, so like, what am I supposed to do? Well, the reality is when you're seeing them every month, what you're supposed to do is help them live with their life-threatening illness. So I think Part of it was necessity. When you're seeing these patients who aren't in the hospital and they're in their regular clothes and they look pretty good and they feel pretty good, that's what becomes important. And so I think over time, it really became a learned skill for our palliative care clinicians when we moved palliative care to the outpatient setting and moved it early. And then everyone sort of became experts on it. And so now it really is baked into our model. And I do think that is different from a lot of palliative care practices. A lot of palliative care practices today really still are quite symptom or pain-based. And I do think that is a different model than what we have here. And I think it also does depend on who you're seeing and when they're seeing them. You know, if you're only seeing people in the last weeks of their life, then, you know, screw coping. They're writhing in pain. You've got to deal with that. So I do think it depends on sort of how you're integrating palliative care with your patient population, kind of what they have the luxury to do or not do. Yeah, I, I would just add that, you know, historically there's a tendency to think about the, the, core, um, the, the core outcomes of interest are symptom dis to relieve symptom distress and to improve uh, goal setting. But you raise another possibility, I think, which is really important, and that it may be that those two are important, but to improve the ability to cope and adapt with chronic illness may be, the, may be either the key mediating variable in allowing improved symptoms to actually translate into better quality of life, or it may be the key outcome that needs to be, uh, needs to be top of mind when people are doing palliative care. It's a very important finding, I think. It really needs to be, I, I, I need to cogitate on that one a little bit more. So you, after, after you get off here, I'm going to spend a few minutes thinking about that. That's, um, the, the, we only have one more question, and here's another sort of philosophical question, and I like this one. It's very challenging to think about. And the question is, when you do comparative trials, you're able to show that the intervention works better than usual care, but how do you know that the intervention is doing enough? So the question, I guess I would translate that by saying, you, you don't have a respondent analysis in which you say, you know, here is here's an improvement in quality of life or an improvement in symptom distress that we're going to say is sufficient, is a clinically meaningful difference, and and this proportion of patients gets there. That would be one way to ask the question: Is are you doing enough? But but then there's the, you know then I I think there is the process question like you know your model doesn't emphasize. Um, uh, spiritual assessment and spiritual intervention and maybe and there are people I know you know who will say that you're not doing enough unless you do that yeah so it's a hard question and you probably say it takes an army <laughs> but I'm just curious it's if you want to provide a, a knowledgeable opinion about that yeah I mean I think that um, you know and we we do have data on this as well that uh, the palliative care clinician does, clinicians in our study, in our practice, do a lot of their own referrals, right? So um, I think, you know, they're not psychiatrists and they're not psychologists and they're not chaplains or social workers, but because they're uh, spending time talking a, a little bit more about what the patient's and their family's individual struggles are, that they're probably picking up on some things that oncology isn't and making those referrals. We know that about half of our referrals to behavioral medicine do come from palliative care. Almost all of our referrals to chaplain in the outpatient setting comes from palliative care. So I think even though it wasn't necessarily on the slides, I think palliative care is at least assessing some of those topics. And if it's an individual who 
doesn't feel comfortable supporting patients with a variety of spiritual or religion belief, they're making those referrals, whereas oncology probably isn't assessing or referring for those topics. Okay, well, I see that the time has, has gone very quickly. I want to thank Dr. Temple for really an outstanding and provocative talk. Um, I'm sure everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, I want to just let everybody know that our next professor's rounds will be by uh, Dr. William Breitbart, who is the Jimmy C. Holland Chair in Psychiatric Oncology and the Chief of the Psychiatry Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He'll be talking about meaning-centered psychotherapy, treating despair at the end of life, and that will take place on Tuesday, November 13th, 2018 at 4 p.m. Please remember to complete your webinar evaluation so that you can also help us plan for the future. And once again, Jennifer, thank you. Really, I appreciate it. It was wonderful. Thank you. Bye now.